Due to its length, this interview with Dr. Brian Krim is being presented in two parts. The first part debuted earlier this same broadcast week, and the second part is presented here. I hope you enjoy our discussion. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Slick Eddie does a really good job of bringing the guests in. Sometimes they're clustered around topics, and this happens to be one of those times. And it's just completely random, based on book releases and stuff like that. We had a guest on last week, uh, Dean Reuter. We talked about a book of his that discussed a Nazi war criminal, and I'm using that phrase, I'm not sure he did, although it's pretty clear he would have been considered a Nazi war criminal, who faked, according to his book, his own suicide, Hans Kammler. He was a general, an Obergruppenführer in the Third Reich, the Nazi army, in fact, in the SS. And we had this conversation about Nazi war crimes, the Holocaust, and and, uh, things related to that. And tonight we actually have another discussion about a similar topic. So let's go to break, and when we come back, we'll bring in our guest again. Tonight we'll be talking with Dr. Brian Krim, and we're talking about Planet Auschwitz, Holocaust representation in science fiction and horror. And I hope we have a little bit of time to touch on that one as well, because that's an interesting topic, particularly because I'm a horror film fan. I know of many of these uh, movies that use Nazi representations, whether it's Nazi zombies or the undead, or there's a movie called Frankenstein's Army, where this German Nazi doctor creates part robot, part human creatures to fight. Uh, it's all, it's all, it's almost all tongue in cheek stuff, but it's entertaining nonetheless. Let's go to break. We'll be right back. It's beyond reality. Looking for our guest's book? Go to amazon.com slash shop slash JVJ taps. Dr. Brian Krim, we're talking about his books, including Our Germans, Project Paperclip, and the National Security State, and the new book, Planet Auschwitz, Holocaust Representation in Science Fiction and Horror. Brian, what's the new book about? You know, this book, when we started our conversation, we were talking about the Holocaust and education and what do students remember and and don't remember. And And I started teaching a Holocaust film class and would show all the classics, Schindler's List, the Shoah, you know, the the important films in the genre. But every every class we started talking about how we noticed Holocaust imagery in shows we were watching together, like The Walking Dead or uh, The Strain, or even things like Battlestar Galactica would have these references to the Holocaust. And we found that to be so interesting. And I found it to be just a topic that had to be explored, which is why do particularly science fiction and, and horror, film and television, always mine the Holocaust for its imagery. Uh, and, and what does that say about the historical memory of the Holocaust, that it is so easily used in these, these genres? And is, is it a, is something we should be uh, mad at, or is it something that reflects uh, just how memory changes? And I just wanted to get a handle on why the Holocaust is still this benchmark for evil or serves as fodder for... Uh, science fiction and horror, film and television. And this book is an attempt to kind of put theory behind that, to give you some good examples, and show that it has a long history, starting with even uh, the films the Third Reich produced itself, uh, and goes all the way up to the present, that this is just a a continual theme, that the Holocaust is everywhere in our culture, and I want to understand why. And that's really what the book is about, is giving uh, some 
some great examples in classic cases, case studies. When you use the word Holocaust in this in this discussion, are you talking about anything that's Nazi related? Because there are a lot of films where right. the Nazis, quote unquote, are bad guys, um, but they're not they're not necessarily showing images of the Holocaust itself. Are you using putting them all together in in, in one uh, definition there? But I do have you know chapters on how uh, on on Nazism and you know examples where the where the Third Reich somehow either survives is victorious or that the the idea that that Nazism never really died and that's reflected in this really uh, powerful Nazi zombie genre that yeah. is always popular and has been for a long time and, and what does it say and what does it say that history is haunting us that it torments us and what I kind of show is that. The reason for the success of these films where the where Nazism never goes away or comes back is really about anxiety uh, that we have not come to terms with our history or uh, that what what um, what we think is gone can always come back and that that always that's the essence of horror and 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 uh, dystopian science fiction is that we have to contend with our past and we always look to the Holocaust and the Third Reich as the ultimate examples of what. Uh, humanity has done wrong and and what can come back to haunt us for failing to change. And that's really what most good horror and sci-fi does is reflect our anxieties. Uh, I've always been under the uh, impression that it was just easy to hate Nazis. Therefore, when you have them as zombies, shooting them up is not going (laughs) to cause anybody any grief. Um, Or even in in a more standard film where the Nazis are real people, uh, having them in some way lose in the end or be killed in the end is not going to be a tragedy. Whereas, you know, even in The Walking Dead, you know, you you see in some scenes, you see family members as zombies. You know, there's obviously a different emotion um, that's prompted when you see them get killed so is that not true that part of this is just easy to hate them it's easy to make them bad guys it starts out that way and, and really the the, the the genre becomes really popular in the 1970s and it coincides with what's called the hitler wave of scholarship and and also pop culture so things like the boys from brazil and yeah. uh, uh after the the adolf eichmann trial which uh, really popularized the idea of, of nazis still around and hiding and, and they're always among us that this uh that really fed into to, to pop culture and, and made uh, the Nazi menace real and terrifying and, and a permanent part of our culture. And uh, they're either going to be um, easy to hate and therefore why not uh, kill them in great numbers, or it's the, a reflection of they, that we haven't yet defeated them, that they're always with us and we're part of it. Uh, things like The Omen, I get into The Omen trilogy, that you know, yes, it's not. There's not explicit mentions of the Holocaust or, or the Third Reich, but the idea that they deliberately cast this child who was meant to look like Hitler, and you can read the script where mm-hmm. it says, "Find a kid who looks like Hitler," and they raise him to be the Antichrist. And the way he becomes comes to power is working in American corporations and part of a wealthy family, and he's protected by the president. It's, it's the idea that there's a there's a merging of a legacy of the Third Reich with our own dysfunctional government, and especially in the 1970s, where it's post-Vietnam, it's post-Watergate, a lot of Americans are looking at a failed state, they see, and, 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 and it's interesting that the first reference they draw, they draw upon is uh, Nazis and the Third Reich. How much truth existed in these ideas, in the sense that how many... I mean, we all know that we, we've uncovered Nazis living among us, and we all know that there were Nazis living that escaped, that took years to find, if they were ever found. Uh, how much of that reality was creeping into this? 
Oh, it was, that's what I think made films like uh, The Boys from Brazil so popular and the novel, of course, uh, that, that they used to, to make it. That it, the Adolf Eichmann was the architect of the Holocaust, and he escaped to Argentina and then was captured by the Israelis, and they put him on trial. But what it just real, what it just showed is that there were tens of thousands of Nazis living freely in all these South American countries, in Turkey, in Egypt, or in Germany, uh, living freely and in some cases enjoying powerful positions. And that reality once is, is enough as a serves as a basis for some of this really spectacular um, horror and science fiction. Like, what if you go to the next level? What if you see them as super soldiers? What if you inject them with supernatural abilities on top of just being ideologically evil? Uh, what it, it, it's more than a gimmick. It's a real reflection of our deep anxieties that we have not yet killed this monster within ourselves. And that the best versions of these these genres point that out. Some of it, of course, is what we call Nazi exploitation or and sex exploitation. You know, Ilsa, She Wolf of the SS, and mm-hmm. all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's how, it's about getting an audience. But some of them are really deep and reflective and powerful and make you think as well as scare you. I'm reminded of um, a a story, and I think it was a novella, if that's the right word, that Stephen King wrote about a boy living next door to a hiding Nazi war criminal in which uh, he starts to pick up the traits from Mm -hmm. this guy because he influences him. I don't remember the name of it, but I'm I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Oh, God, I can't remember (laughs) so much of my tongue. But yeah, it was also a movie with Ian McClellan as the the Nazi next door. Oh, it was Um, made into a film as well. Apt, apt pupil, that's what it's called. Apt pupil. Oh wow, okay. I didn't know. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. But uh, it, it, I mean, it, so it it's books, it's it's movie, it's television. Mm-hmm. It's it, I'm sure it shows up uh, in all facets of pop culture. It does, and I kind of break it down into uh, uh, different chapters. One is on I call Nazi monsters and the return of history. The, the things like the boys from Brazil, but also uh, this vampire series that Guillermo del Toro. Uh, produced for FX called The Strain, where the Nazis, the Nazis are vampires. And what's interesting about that is that really the Nazis used vampire uh, metaphors to describe Jews. Uh, there was a famous anti-Semitic metaphor. Dracula itself is an anti-Semitic nightmare. And the fact that now Guillermo del Toro, who of course, is very socially conscious about how he makes his horror, and, and he wrote the books that this is based on, he decided to flip that script and say, well, what if the Nazis are the vampires? What if they are the bloodsuckers? What if they are controlling every aspect of our culture and, and, and business and, uh, and, and make them the monstrosity? Then what is it? doesn't it make you reflect on how the vampires had always been perceived before? And I find that kind of pointing that out to me is, is, the, is part of the book, is that we, w- we want people to think critically about these shows they enjoy and enjoy it on another level because there some of them are very, very deep and have a long history of representation going all the way back to the Weimar Republic in the 1920s. One of my guilty pleasures is playing a video game called Call of Duty, and my son got me into this, and it's something that we actually play together, <laughs> despite it's so, the fact it's so violent. But for many years, they had a uh, kind of a sub-game within, all, within this game as it was le- released, and it was uh, Nazi zombies. The Nazi right. zombie genre, genre seems to make its way into uh, not just video gaming, but obviously there are a lot of films uh, about that. And some people speculate, 
and we talk about a lot of paranormal topics on this show, but some people speculate yeah. that the Nazis were actually involved in the occult and looking for, for mystical ways to influence the outcome of the war. Is there any truth to that that you're aware of? Yeah, there is. Uh, one of my, my good friends and colleague, uh, his name's Eric Kurlander, wrote a book about just that, like a real history of how of the Nazi, of Hitler himself and his fascination with the occult. Because so much of the work out there is is wrong or spectacular and, and not really based on the facts. He kind of uh, you know, goes into the, the real story behind it and see that there was this fascination about creating a, a, a compelling narrative about the Aryan people, because there was no such thing as an Aryan race, so you have to create a good story. And so Hitler and the early Nazi party in particular went to the occult to build this narrative of who, are, who is this master race, where do they come from, so he's fascinated with uh, India and Nepal and uh, the old Nordic gods to replace the Christian gods. But what's most important about the Nazi obsession with the occult is why they were attracted to it, is that it gave them a, a lot of propaganda weapons to define their enemies as monstrous. So I already talked about seeing Jews as vampires, but seeing Jews as the golem, uh, seeing Jews as somehow so powerful as to defy, uh, you know, human law, and, and therefore they had to be destroyed. They, they weaponized the occult to attack their racial enemies, and the Jews were just one of those. And, I, and, I, and you see that in, this, in some of these films as well. Even the films the Nazis produced, the Jews are seen as almost supernatural and monstrous, and therefore, what do you do with an enemy like that? You destroy them. So it, goes, it has a long history. In the beginning of this discussion, you mentioned that you taught a class and you showed uh, Holocaust-related films. Give me a, a list of three or four of the ones that you think most effectively and maybe most accurately reflect what really happened and that you'd recommend people's, people watch. You know, I think uh, the most powerful, and not that anyone could watch all of it, but, but it's a documentary called Shoah. It's a nine-hour documentary. Now, do you want to sit and watch nine hours of it? No, but it's made by this brilliant uh, French filmmaker, Claude Lonsman. And what he did is he took, uh, he, he, he basically uh, takes his cameras all around the world to interview survivors while, and, ta- and bring them back to the places they suffered in the contemporary period. He doesn't show any old footage. He doesn't show uh, that black and white stuff. He just takes them to Poland, what's left of a death camp, and interviews them there. And, to, and every student... Uh, breaks down when they when they see this. It's it's a very famous film. Um, it, it came out in 1985. He spent decades working on it. Watch, uh, watch just clips of it. It's meant to be watched in clips. You don't have to watch the whole thing. That is amazing. Uh, I still like Schindler's List, not so much because I think it's an accurate representation of the Holocaust. It's it's very contrived, but it's also the most effective in history of film of getting people to be aware of the Holocaust and, and the 1990s. It's a, it's a perfectly crafted Spielberg film. Uh, it has a lot of other issues with it, too, but, I, but you have to show it because it is the archetype of so many other Holocaust films. And, and one of my favorites is a French film called uh, Au revoir les enfants, or, or Goodbye Little Children. And it's, uh, it takes place in a orphanage where a Jewish child is hiding his identity in a kind of Catholic school, and it's about coming of age in this occupation in France and, and uh, the, the, the pressure of hiding who you are in a, in a, uh, a school environment. And it's, it's a very powerful 
lovely, emotional. And so I, I would go with those three. And conversely, are there any one any films that you think people should just stay away? And I don't mean like the tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. you know, as you would say, Nazi exploitation horror type stuff, right. but anything that that just doesn't do the 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 memory of what happened justice. You know, I find that a lot of my students are are have been forced to watch The Boy in the Striped Pajamas when they're in school, and that is really seen as among those of us who study the Holocaust and, and especially film. It's really kind of awful because it, for one, it, it's it's so wrong factually in many ways, and it's this idea of humanizing the SS family more than you are giving any kind of in-depth study of the actual uh, Jewish victims. They're the ones who are uh, the SS. You're supposed to feel sorry for the SS family because their kid accidentally gets killed in a gassing. It's it's a contrived, really awful, and emotionally manipulative film, there's so much reality you can portray, enough horrors that actually happened to invent them and then make the SS family the real victims is something that most of us as educators move away from. But I find that it seems to be very popular, and I think some school districts have decided that instead of showing Schindler's List, we're going to show this updated new film, I guess. And, and I, I would say go with Schindler's List if you have to watch anything for the first time in middle school, for example. Schindler's List inspired me a bit, and I read uh, not only the book that it was based on, but several mm-hmm. other, that, uh, you know, that related to the topic or similar topics. How much literature is available? It seems like there's a lot, but is there enough to keep this story and these ideas and these memories uh, in our public consciousness? You know, there certainly is enough, but what's amazing is how much new sources are are always found and and that's not just the personal stories but just uh the the side we've underestimated the scale of the holocaust and so one of the things the u.s holocaust memorial museum in washington has done is is for one put together this massive encyclopedia of 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 camps and they found that they that if you define a camp uh on a lower level just as maybe a few hundred as opposed to like tens of thousands there were 40,000 more camps than we ever thought possible, these satellite camps. And, the, and, you, and with the scale of it is, is, is so much grander than we ever imagined. And also, the death toll is going to be revised upward. That I know is going to be coming in the next uh, decade of scholarship. It's not going to be $6 million anymore. It's going to be closer to seven. Wow. And, and that, and, and that's, to me, is proof that the, the more sources we're exposed to, the more things we find, that uh, the this, story this is not yet even close to being told. And as we lose survivors, um, cataloging their memories as well as best we can is our top priority. Did the attitude or anything, for that matter, I'm, I'm certain the information available did, but what, what else changed after the fall of the Iron Curtain and the democratization of some of those sites, particularly Poland, uh, that, that yeah. held some of the most nor- notorious camps? One of the dis- disturbing things we find in places like Poland and Hungary now, where you have you know, these new right-wing authoritarian governments, is they want to revise the history of the Holocaust. They want to write out the uh, involvement of their own people in in the Holocaust. And, and, and Poland, in particular, wants to uh, de-emphasize Jewish suffering and elevate Polish suffering. And this almost like there's always been this Olympics of suffering game between a, a lot of different groups. 
But the reason they're doing it is very cynical. They want to make and Polish anti-Semitism is still very real. And uh, there's only 11,000 Jews left in Poland. There used to be 3 million, and that's uh, because of the Holocaust. And, and what you find is these are contested places now, and, and places like the Ukraine um, and Hungary, there's a wave of anti-Semitism that is all about rectifying or elevating the suffering of, of, of non-Jews to the level of Jews and discounting the fact that many Ukrainians, Poles, and Hungarians participated in the violence against the Jews. And that needs to be told as well. But these new textbooks and laws on the books that literally punish Holocaust historians for researching the topic at all are, are meant to kind of uh, de-emphasize that suffering. And that, that's, that scares me. It scares all of us who are um, into intellectual freedom. Tell me about the manuscript you found. This is uh, Walter Yessel. Yeah, this is um, relating to, uh, back to our Germans. The first person to interview the rocket team in captivity was a German-Jewish refugee named Walter Jessel. He's a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. He escaped the Third Reich in 1933, made his way to America in 1938, uh, enlisted in the U.S. Army as a what were called the Ritchie Boys. A lot of people may have heard of them. There are about two or 3,000 German-Jewish refugees who are trained as saboteurs and, in, and uh, intelligence officials and uh, interrogators. He was one of them, and he was part of Patton's army, and he was assigned to investigate these Germans holed up in a Bavarian ski chalet, and one of they turned out to be the Werner von Braun rocket team, and he was the first one to interview them and wrote this incredible intelligence report. And I was so fascinated by him I contacted his family. They gave me access to his diaries and, and everything else that he had. He died, I think, in 2013. And in that was a manuscript he wrote in 1946, living in his town of Frankfurt again as a U.S. Army soldier. And he wrote about tracking down all his high school friends. What happened to them? Were, you know, did they live? Did they die? Were they pro-Nazi? Were they anti-Nazi? Uh, and he called this manuscript Class of 31. And I kept that name uh, and edited the, the whole manuscript. And uh, not that he needed much, because he was a journalist. He was a great writer. But it's a story of this German-Jewish refugee coming back to his country as an American soldier and confronting the people he felt had uh, betrayed you know, him, his family, their values. And, and he wrote about it in just really personal detail and, and, and a fascinating travelogue. And... Uh, so it's called Class of 31, a German-Jewish refugee's visit to destroy Germany. And no one had uh, had seen this publicly prior to you discovering it? No, he put it in the desk drawer. I think wow. he tried to get it published when he got back to America. He had one, you know, one person take a look at it and say, you know what, no one's interested in Germany anymore. <laughs> and then and he put it in the desk drawer uh, and when I got a hold of it as like a you know in a Dropbox, basically a digital Dropbox, I read it, even though it had nothing to do with what I was writing at the time about Paperclip. I went, this needs to get to the world because it's an amazing story and it's so beautifully written. And luckily, the family gave me permission to to pursue it, and it's uh, published as Academic Studies Press. You can get it for like twenty nine dollars on Amazon, uh, and it's a uh, it's a great textbook for students, too, because it's very readable and it's a perspective on the Cold War that, well, the Cold War and, and post-war Germany that you're really not going to find. 
I have to ask you a question that is not related to anything we spoke about, but I'm just just curious. You uh, went to Rutgers. Uh, you've had some affiliation there. Did, did you take any music classes in, at Rutgers by any chance? No, I didn't. I was there in the PhD program, so I really only had time to do <laughs> to do that research. And I, I I taught undergraduates, but I didn't get to take any of their classes. Uh, I was just curious because my uncle is a professor there, so I was just kind of oh, wow. kind of wondering if uh, maybe you'd cross paths with him. He's in, uh, he's a Beethoven expert, in fact. Um, when we're, we're about out of time here, but if you had to deliver a, a message, whether it's a sentence, a word, or a paragraph, to people who are I don't know if they're they're on the edges of really understanding what the Holocaust was about and why it's important to remember it, and particularly for those of us who fear that it could happen again, what would that message be? That the phrase "never again" is that is is, is a joke, and we and because it, it's happened endlessly. And the thing to know about the Holocaust is that it comes from human nature. It's not a German problem. It's not something that happens in Rwanda or Cambodia. It's a human problem. And the best book I would recommend, and I just finished signing it to my students, is a book by a social psychologist named James Waller called Becoming Evil. And he interviews hundreds of of, uh, perpetrators and victims, but perpetrators and many genocides. And what you come away with is that this is within us. It's not a foreign land. It is within us. And I urge everyone to acknowledge that before they um, read anything else. <laughs> yeah, and just one more point about the Holocaust itself and what happened during World War II as perpetrated by the Nazis. You know, you mentioned some other examples of genocide, and there certainly are plenty right. throughout history, and we, we were experiencing some today. But I think maybe the difference with what happened in World War II was the industrial level and the, mm-hmm. and the almost uh, uh, assembly line uh, process by yeah. which death was enacted. And that's, yeah, well, to get back to our earlier discussion, you know, about Western civilization, that we can't be complacent about thinking we are superior, that we have our values are, are uh, beyond just reproach. That's what helps the Holocaust happen, where things that we take for granted, medicine and law and, and bureaucracy, are, these are things we rely on and we value but they can be easily turned against us, and that's what happened in the Holocaust. It's, it's not an aberration. It's, it's sadly part of our story. Our guest tonight, Dr. Brian Krim, a couple books we've been talking about, including Our Germans, Project Paperclip, and The National Security State, and also Planet Auschwitz, Holocaust Representation in Science Fiction and Horror. I know there's a, there's a website associated with Planet Auschwitz. It's planetauschwitz.com. What's that about, Brian? That's, a, that's kind of my blog, because one of the things I... I figured out is that there's so much out there that I, I couldn't fit it all in one book. So what I do is at least once a week, I, I try to uh, show you another connection between Holocaust imagery and, and TV and, and films that are out there. So things like Westworld that's on now and, and still walking dead. I try to keep you updated and because I, the book is just, you know, it's, it, I, I can't write a thousand pages. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's been a it's uh, been a very interesting discussion, and I thank you for your work too. These stories need to be not just told, but retold in many cases, and people need to be reminded of what uh, what occurred and its implications, and how we have to be ever vigilant that it doesn't happen again. It's been great, JV. I really appreciate you having me on, and I, I value your knowledge here. You're very you're very up on everything, so <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, thank you, and I hope you'll agree to come back at some point as well. 
Absolutely. That concludes the second part of my discussion with Dr. Brian Krim. If you're interested in the first part of the discussion, look earlier in this broadcast week and you'll find that episode. Thanks for listening. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.